Good morning, Portland, Maine, Southern Maine. Welcome back. Hi, Smart Talk with Steve-O, News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5 FM. How are we doing today, Emily? Doing pretty good. How are you? I've never been happier. It's Saturday, January 14th. It is. Do you two know, weeks in. Two weeks in. And you know what this is? This is the last Saturday ever before a Trump presidency. That it is. Yeah. Next Friday, I think January 20th is the inauguration. It is. So um, that'll be interesting. If nothing else, it will be interesting. Oh, not that I'm optimistic, but I'm hopeful. And that our new president is able to do good things, is able to help and serve the interests of the people. So we'll see. There's nothing else. all we can hope for. There's nothing we can do. Oh, boy. You know what? In about one minute, we have our guest, Godfrey Wood. He's the Mm -hmm. executive director of Habitat for Humanity. Just about one minute. Really interesting. We taped the interview yesterday. Yeah, it was awesome. Wow. He's also Mr. Hockey. He's also involved with ownership and running hockey teams here in Maine. So really fun talk with him. But before we get to that, on this day, January 4th, in 1901 was the first gusher of black gold in the U.S., and it was in uh, Beaumont, Texas. You know who used to live in Beaumont, Texas for two years? A younger Steve-O? A younger Steve-O. I was uh, involved with country music in the 80s and lived in a double-wide trailer in Beaumont, Texas. And for two months of those two years, I lived with a guy named David Allen Coe, which was this country music uh, outlaw, mm-hmm. and uh, geez, we should do a whole show on that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll get him on the phone. Uh, what else? Uh, 1946, this uh, on today, was the first meeting of the United Nations, and so this is the 71-year anniversary. Uh, it was originally created in 1920 as the League of Nations, mm-hmm. and then it evolved into the United Nations. And then what else do we have here? Our birthdays. David Grawl. Mm-hmm. He turns 48. Do you have a little David Grawl there? Foo Fighters, right? I'm going to guess that David Grawl and this song has never been played on WLOB. You don't think so? No, no. Lawrence Welk is heavy rotation. Lawrence Welk is heavy rotation. uh, You know, Frank Chammer of the Board Sinatra. So I think that uh, right now the WLOB transmitter is shaking a little bit to have uh, this kind of edgy music. So with that, why don't we get to the interview with our first guest. He joined us yesterday. He's somebody who's very involved with his community. I've been fortunate to also work with his wife, who is publisher of The Forecaster, Karen Wood. So with that, let's go into the recorded interview we did uh, with Godfrey Wood. Thank you for listening to Tide Smart Talk to Steve-O. scores at the good old hockey game. Oh, the good old hockey game. I love hockey, don't you, Emily? I do. Yeah, and it's been a while since we've had thematic hockey music. And uh, please join me in welcoming our guest, Godfrey uh, Wood. How are you, Godfrey? I'm great, thank you. Have you ever been uh, introduced with uh, hockey theme music? No, but next time I'd prefer I Want to Drive the Zamboni. Oh, that's a classic. I was trying to think of something from Slapshot. One of my favorite movies. You probably don't want that on this show. No, no. There's not a lot of dialogue we could have, but maybe some of the music. So, you know, the reason we played the hockey music is you've had such success and in your professional career, uh, both with Pittsburgh Penguins and uh, co-owner, CEO 
of one of the earlier versions of the Portland Pirates, I think in the uh, early mid-90s. But before we talk about that, let's talk a little bit about your background in terms of how you ended up in Maine. Did you grow up in Maine, where you went to school, how you got involved with sports, and then obviously you were involved with the Chamber, and currently you are in a leadership role with Habitat Portland, which I think we want to cover because I think it's interesting and really important. Yep. But let's start about the early years and how Godfrey Wood ended up uh, here in uh, Maine. I used to live in Boston, work in Boston. I was brought up there. What part of Boston did you grow up? Brookline. I grew up in Needham. Uh-huh. Out, out in the old, suburbs. Old rivals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, speaking of hockey, I don't remember Robbie Fertorek. I sure do, yeah. He was uh, one of probably the most successful players to come out of Needham High. Yep. I remember as a kid watching, you know, and then he went on to be a, a pretty, he had a pretty good professional career, and then famously he was the coach, I think, in the, the L.A. Kings when Gretzky was traded. That's right. And then Gretzky came out to L.A., and then like a month later, Gretzky said, hey, I want another coach. Right. And I haven't heard much about Robbie Fedor. <laughs> so, so you grew up there. Grew up there. Um, used to co-own a hockey team in Nashville, Tennessee, in what was then called the East Coast Hockey League, which is now the ECHL. What was the impetus for your interest in hockey? From playing or I, from a business interest? Or where did it start? Both. I played um, all through high school and college and afterwards and always wanted to own the Boston Bruins. You know what? That was part of my... I was sort of between the Celtics and the Bruins, but I grew up in the era of Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito, and then, you know, Brad Park, I think, was traded from the Rangers at one point. So did I. Yep. You know, and what was his name? Johnny Busick. And then back in the day when and, you know, Achievers is the goalie, I think his mask had these black marks on it before new technology, yep. and they looked like stitches. That was the purpose. That was the purpose. And then yep. before that, they didn't even wear uh, goalies didn't even wear masks, which you look back now and you think that feels insane yep. that nobody in, early on in the game said we should put something to cover goalies' faces because they're getting <laughs> smashed with pucks. I was a goalie. You were a goalie. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, did you always have a mask? Or no, you ever... not till freshman year in college. So in high school, God, I don't want to, this is such a kind of a minute <laughs> point, but it's fascinating. In high school, you played goalie without any kind of mask. Yeah, but it was different then because they didn't have the curved sticks, so you could pretty much figure out where the puck was going to go. Unless it get deflected, which, you know, yeah. you, you can't figure that out. All <laughs> of a sudden, somebody's in front of the goal. Uh, yeah, I remember uh, early on just, just how the sport was so different. And then you're right, with with sticks and technology, and all of a sudden the puck started flying faster. Players didn't know where they are going to go, and neither did the goalie. Yeah. As we talk about your interest in the Boston Bruins, uh, I still think to this day, and obviously Bobby Orr had some had some knee problems and surgeries, but watching his old videos through YouTube, I still think he he was, if not the most, but in the top five most dynamic players. Watching him skate around and watching him back check, go behind the goal, and then do a figure eight while every other player on the ice was just kind of stumbling around. Still to this day, it was is magical. Oh, it is. He's an incredible guy. I used to play um, hockey with him after he retired from the Bruins. It was a pickup men's league. Really? Yep. It, it, down there outside of Boston? In Brookline, yeah. Uh, I, you know, about uh, two years ago, three years ago, there was some Hockey Hall of Fame induction up in, uh, I think it was in Toronto. And I was on an Air Canada flight. And as I get on the plane, I'm sitting next to Bobby Orr. 
And I knew one of his original agents, uh, Bob Wolf, and I got involved with NBA and sport, being a sports agent. So Bobby and I were talking, and again, I grew up uh, in Needham, learned to skate on the Charles River, which for anyone who knows Boston is sort of crazy because Mm -hmm. it's a pretty big river. It's smaller when it gets to the suburbs, but it's definitely flowing water. Oh, yeah. And for reasons that still amaze me, my parents... Yeah, you know, some 57, so this is like half a century ago, I would say, hey, I'm going to go out and play hockey in the river. And my parents were like, hey, have fun. Yeah. And I remember getting <laughs> down on my stomach and where the puck went off to the edge, you know, fishing it out of the water. And it was a running river. Yep. And now, you know, if, if, you're, if you, you couldn't put a kid into a bathtub without four floaties <laughs> and without right. EMT on standby and all the safety stuff, but it was a different era. But I was on this plane with Bobby Orr, and I was like, we're talking about Needham High School and, you know, you know his iconic career with the Bruins. And he said, geez, I, you know, did you ever play? And I'm like, well, I played a little bit. I, I, uh, I grew up in Needham, and I played for a year at Berkshire, which is a school in Western Mass. And he goes, oh, were you any good? I'm talking to Bobby Orr, right? <laughs> and I go, well, yeah, uh, you know, and Bobby Orr is a great player, apparently a nice man, not very whimsical in terms of a sense of humor, kind of a dry Canadian sense of humor. So I said, Bobby, I was pretty good except for one thing. He goes, oh, yeah, what's that? Like, I really couldn't skate backwards. And I thought Bobby would chuckle, and he was like, oh, yeah, that's really important. <laughs> so Bobby Orr telling me that skating, right. you know, skating back, checking is skating backwards. And so yeah. after that, it was kind of a quiet flight. So from your experience playing and then, uh, so buying the Bruins didn't work out. So no. you went down the food chain exactly. and got involved with buying a minor league team. Yep. And uh, what team was that? And then we'll talk about how we uh, ended it, up here in Maine. It was called the Nashville Knights. And um, one of the interns that I had working with me down there, her dad came down to watch a game once. And after the game, he came up to me and said, you know, I like what you do here. It's a great show. Um, can we have dinner? Wow. So we had dinner. It turned out he owned a team in Baltimore that was failing and wanted to move it somewhere. So he asked me what, I, what he should do, and we became fast friends, and the team ended up in Portland. And after I got the lease negotiated, he said, you know, will you go run it for me? Wow. And, and again, I don't want to yeah, – this has nothing to do with your ownership or management, but the term hockey team failing seems to be kind of a theme um, relative to minor league hockey. All you know, oh, the, all, it, all over the part because of the economics, the expense, ice rinks are expensive, so facilities are expensive. Yeah, but you know, all the way back to you know, we talked beforehand. One of my favorite movies, Slapshot, with mm-hmm. Paul Newman, and part of the theme of the movie was uh, the team was based in a steel town, and the owner was selling it or moving it or it was failing, and it just feels like so much. Uh, you know, of minor league hockey is kind of besieged by that reality of the economics and everyone's trying to make it work, but it's really hard. And so we'll, we'll cover that here in Portland. But then how did you end up from there, uh, you know, being here in Maine? Did you, did you have any relationship in Maine before this or was that really the thing that just brought I, you to Maine? I'd been here, <laughs> in, been the, here. in the summer. Come up for a lobster <laughs> roll. Yeah. Sure. And uh, what year was that that you came up? That was 92. We moved, our family moved up here. Um, I was the general manager and president of the Pirates. My wife was running the merchandise business, and my kids were selling programs in the lobby at age six and four. Well, outstanding. I should also say I think there's some sort of 
with, with journalism coming in attack these days, I think everyone's hypersensitive about disclosure, but uh, your wife is publisher of The Forecaster, right? Correct. And I write a column for The Forecaster. I know that. And so she said to say hi. I, I would say hi to her. I'd love to be with The Forecaster. And I won't lobby you for another 30 cents per column because I don't want to, you know, put any kind of uh, pressure or burden on The Forecaster newspapers. But uh, so, you know, the, the Portland Pirates, t- talk a little bit. And then I want to talk about you were CEO of the Portland Regional Chamber of Commerce. And since 2013, the, the current executive director of Habitat for Humanity in the greater Portland group. Right. But what was back in that day, 92 to 95, running the Portland Pirates like in terms of both the team, the economics, and the community? It was a blast. We didn't make money, but um, we lost a manageable amount of money. And sometimes in the business of pro sports, you sustain losses and then sell the franchise later on and make a profit. Right. So the equity of the team makes up for the operating deficit, which is hopefully, hopefully, yeah, that's what you want to have happen. No, it was great. It was just, we had incredible fans. The team was as good as they've ever been. I'm still Facebook friends with some of the players and um, it was magical. We changed the whole model from being hockey to being family entertainment. Um, We got criticized for some zany promotions on the ice, but the kids loved it, and they made their parents take them to the games. Right. And we won a championship. Almost in that same period of 92 to 95, in 91 to 94, I was the tournament director of a men's ATP event in um, Atlanta called the AT&T Challenge. And it was a major tournament just mm. before the French Open. So we had uh, the era of Jimmy Connors played, Andre Agassi, Jim Courier. And the tournament director is the equivalent of the general manager, the CEO that you were at the Pirates. And for me, that was my favorite gig, too. There was something about running a sports enterprise where all the different pieces, you know, whether it's when the players come on court, how the game or the the tournament is presented, how you interact with fans, how you sell sponsorship – all the volunteers, all the employees, you know, when does the parking lot open, the concessions, the merchandise, there are hundreds of details. So it's like an orchestra of different business disciplines. And when it comes together, it's really fun and rewarding running it. Yeah, it is. It's something that in other business practices can be fulfilling and rewarding. And I'm very fulfilled in my, in my current role here at TimeSmart. But I look back at that time where for four years, you know, metaphorically, I had these two walkie-talkies, and I could orchestrate like a like a conductor of an orchestra. Well, we're going to start early. We're going to add an event. We're going to do a community charity thing. We're going to do this between matches. And you can literally see the cause and effect between sports as a catalyst to connect with a community, and then the athleticism is, is also a bonus, watching Andre Agassi yeah. and Jimmy Connors play oh, yeah you know, for two hours, it's, it's yep. something I look back on. And, I, and for me, it was, a, you know, 30 years ago, but it was, uh, I, I miss that sometimes. Well, I used to tell people the biggest thrill of running the Pirates was when you walk into the building before the game right. and, and see the, the seats are all sold, then you've done your job. Yeah. And the next part is up to the players and the coach. I used to enjoy that. And then I also used to really enjoy either a few hours before 
you know, I also ran pro beach volleyball and same kind of dynamic. But a few hours before a big televised event, we were on NBC at the time, and everything's empty. There's kind of a stillness. Yeah. It, you know, we still do a lot of work with NASCAR. I love going to NASCAR tracks about five hours before the event, and there's like this sense of all this energy is going to be there in a little bit, but you're there in the vacuum. And in the same way, two hours after an event, people are cleaning up, and you hear barrels being banged around, but the, the, you know, the arena, the civic center, the tournament is empty. And there's something kind of magical about the oh, space. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I miss that. So, <laughs> so since 1995, uh, when was the team sold and relocated and then reconfigured as the Pirates? What, what was now, what, the what's te- the chronology of the Portland Pirates here? I sold my interest, and uh, there've been probably five or six other owners since then. Right. And right up until the ownership group left a couple of years ago, was that the, was that the same continuum of? Ownership it group, was, different it forms. Was different owners. Right. And then, um, so let's bring it up to speed to a couple of years ago. Prior to that, there was some contentious uh, negotiations between the Cumberland County Civic Center and the ownership group back then, led by, I think, Brian Petrovic, Correct. and there was another owner uh, out of Boston. Um, and it to me, and I had some connection to it because we did some work with the Civic Center and I knew Brian and I was a season ticket holder. I had no financial interest but and I followed hockey my whole life. But it felt like, from my perspective, that the Pirates were under such financial pressure and they were, you know, for many years operating at a loss that their approach with the Civic Center was we really want you to kind of um, connect with our economic model. So we want, and uh, in, in, in every negotiation, both parties want to get the best deal, but it felt like the pirates were trying to push a deal that was a little bit out of the scope of a typical deal for a civic center. And the civic center, because it is, you know, I don't think a lot of people know this, but the, because it is the Cumberland County Civic Center, it's literally owned and was created by the taxpayers within Cumberland County. Correct. In each municipality within Cumberland County. And when I was the chairman of the Yarmouth Town Council, we would get a bill literally from the Cumberland. And the county, you know, I don't think 99 out of 100 people even know what the county does, but involves probate, jail systems, and other systems specific to the county. But I don't think the Civic Center could go any lower you know, there was uh, it was contentious. The team moved up to Lewiston-Auburn for one season. They came up with an agreement, and then kind of out of out of the blue, the team ended up leaving again. Mm-hmm. So, and it feels like that, that keeps happening in minor league hockey. And what I've heard, and I'd love to get your insight, a big part of it was with the Pirates is there was a high fee that had to be paid relative to the players and the affiliation with the NHL affiliation, which really made the numbers almost impossible. It wasn't specifically anyone's fault other than the economic structure just felt like it was so impossible that, that nobody really won on the deal. Yep, I would say that's accurate. And the, the Pirates' approach to trying to negotiate a better lease, I think, turned off the fans. They kept saying, we're going to move the team if Portland doesn't do this. Yeah, at one point, and it was in a public meeting, so I'm not betraying any confidence. I think Brian Petrovic, as he was uh, the general manager and representing the ownership group, wanted to take control and ownership of the Civic Center. 
on kind of a favorable deal, yep. which you can't blame a guy for asking, but the Civic Center was owned by me, you, every taxpayer within Cumberland County. It seemed kind of, from my perspective, kind of an audacious request, like, hey, we'll own it and we'll do this. And yep. uh, so they left. Um, what's the status right now? I know that you've uh, been active in the last couple of years because of your experience and your role in the business community and as a business leader and community leader, you've put together or you're working with some other people exploring potential options to bring another minor league team. And it looks like that window is closed for this year. But what's the status? And then looking forward, do you think Portland can sustain, if not an EHL, there's different uh, affiliations, different type of minor league hockey. Do you think minor league hockey will come back to Portland? Absolutely. I think you'll see a team back here for the 18-19 season. I'm in touch with one entity who I believe is going to do it, and I'm not at liberty to disclose who they are. Okay. But I think you'll see some some news early in the spring. Great. Can, can, you know, can you explain, and again, another point of disclosure, I'm one of the co-owners of the Red Claws, and we're an affiliate of the Celtics. Right. So in in professional basketball – The business model is you have, I think, 30 NBA teams and there's 22 D-League teams. Some of them are directly affiliated, a couple. But the business model is that many times the parent club, in this case the Celtics, absorb some of the operational cost and the league pays for the players. And so historically the NBA minor league program has been successful and profitable. Major League Baseball has a similar model where parent clubs own or have control of their minor league affiliates. That has been fairly successful. Let's talk about specifically how hockey is different and how you think a team coming back next year, which I would support and hope it happens, how do you think that business model will change, allowing it to be successful, profitable, and something that fans can get behind? I think the major difference when in basketball and baseball, you have agreements between the league. Um, baseball, I believe, is because of the antitrust exemption, right. where you have the Sea Dogs and they pay a percent of their ticket revenue to the Red Sox, and that's their only cost of having the playing team coaches and all that here. Um, I used to figure when I was running the Pirates that they were paying $5,000 for every home game they played for their playing team. And we were paying twenty thousand to the Washington Capitals. Wow! Yeah, supply and demand. Not only that, but the infrastructure, the facility, and the ice. And you know, we talked about zambonis, and you need a couple of those, and those aren't cheap, and uh, right. a, lot, a lot of overhead. So, should the NHL and, and you know, the NHL is a is an international product, and there are some parts of the world where hockey is even bigger, and Scandinavia and Russia, where it's mm-hmm. is big or bigger than here in the U.S. But do you think it's something that the NHL should look at how to reorganize their minor league system so everyone's successful, or do you think it's just a matter of economics or uh, you know an open market where some teams are going to succeed and some are going to fail, or is it just something structural? in professional hockey that makes it really hard for teams to be successful? Um, I don't think they're going to change how they do things. Most of the teams in the American Hockey League, which is their top development league, are owned by the National Hockey League parent teams. So it's a minor expense to them if the American League franchise loses money. 
It's the cost of one defenseman in the National Hockey League. Right. Um, in the ECHL, which is the next level down, um, you have player salary caps, and the teams assiduously support and agree to that. And you do get some support from the NHL parent teams to have players develop at that league. So the cost of your playing team is a third of what it is in the American Hockey League. And the quality of hockey, the competition, I think is just as good. Is there any reason to think that your your optimism for a team coming back to Southern Maine, they would play anywhere other than the Civic Center? Or is the goal to continue the tradition of having professional hockey in the Civic Center? I think um, the Civic Center would like to have hockey back in there. They've now got tremendous competition with other venues around here for other events, concerts, whatever. Right. Um, and I think it's a great product. It helps support sponsorship revenues for the Civic Center. Um, so would, 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 it, would your preference be, or is it you're going to let, you know, once you know there may be a team interested, and then look in the market and see if the Civic Center makes sense, or maybe there are other options? I think that's the only option. The only option is to explore options, or the only option is the <laughs> Civic Center. Uh, we have Godfrey Wood here. He is currently the Executive Director of Habitat for Human- uh, Humanity in Greater Portland. Um, for many years, was CEO of the Portland Regional Chamber of Commerce and involved with professional hockey for many, many years. So final question, I think, about professional hockey. Are you at liberty to uh, to discuss if it comes back, and hopefully it'll come back next year, which level of minor league, or is that something where um, you still don't know or it really depends on where the affiliation is? Oh, I don't think there's any question it would be the ECHL. And that's the lower level from the AHL, so it's not the direct path to an NHL team, but it's still professional players and it's still development. And you've had something like 800 ECHL players who have moved on to play in the NHL, so it's directly in the path. Okay. So let's, uh, I could talk about hockey for four hours. We're going to have to do this some other time. I want to move on to your other background. Um, CEO of Portland Regional Chamber of Commerce. Everyone, I think, is familiar with the Chamber of Commerce. Everyone's familiar with the term and, and has a general idea. But for listeners that may not be aware, describe a little bit the Portland Regional Chamber of Commerce, how big of a region and what exactly is the mission and mandate of the Chamber of Commerce and your role for about 15 years running it here in Southern Maine? Um, essentially, the Chamber had evolved for over 150 years into different business organizations. And we had Chambers in Scarborough, South Portland, Cape Elizabeth, Cumberland, Falmouth, Gorham, Westbrook, and Portland itself. And the goal is to support business people, help them help lobby for them in anti-business matters, support their growth, and to help people build new connections and grow their business. A few weeks ago, we had uh, Dana in here. I think he's oversees the state. Yep. Chamber of Commerce. Yep. Um, so, relative to to so you've been involved in business, have been an owner of business, have run business, so. And then, obviously, the, the, the Regional Chamber of Commerce. What, what role, when you say represent business, so business interests, there, there are some specific kind of hot points. Uh, having minimum wage set is something that collectively I think businesses want to have a, an advocate for. 
anything that involves labor, anything that involves business development, regulations. So some of it is legislative. Some of it is making sure the collective voices of your constituents are, are heard. Um, but what other uh, elements of local or, you know, the Portland Regional Chamber of Commerce uh, were you involved in that listeners may not be familiar with? We started putting on a lot more events so people could join the chamber, make connections, work with other chamber members, which is kind of a bonding and a community support effort. Right. And um, we got involved in advocacy and quickly discovered that if we were looking at a minimum wage bill or should Maine support gay marriage or whatever, that our members would disagree on that. Right. So we quickly decided that a lot of times the best thing you could do was to educate people about both sides of an issue and let them decide how they wanted to vote. Uh, I, you know, I, and my guess is you kind of want to delicately straddle a political line because administrations change, people in control of state legislatures change, but some of the issues are policy issues and some of the issues are partisan issues. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, the next question is, and uh, you, you left the, the chamber in 2012, um, in terms of current day, um, what are your thoughts relative to the business environment, both here in Maine, southern Maine, and we're about to have a new president in the next week, and we're, we're coming out of, I don't know if it was a depression or recession, but mm-hmm. it was six or seven years of um, very tumultuous uh, economic kind of a roller coaster. So where, where do you, as a former business owner and as somebody heavily involved in the interest of businesses here in Maine, what's your view on the business climate in Maine going forward? I still own four businesses. They're all restaurants. Uh, with partners. Um, I'd say it's a difficult business environment here. You've got some cities where it's really hard to get anything done. You've got others that just welcome you to open an office or a store and go out of their way to make it easy. But from a statewide point of view, I think our taxes are a huge problem. Um, It just really limits how much business you can do, and our energy costs are out of line with what you need to do to be successful. When, when you say that some towns or municipalities have one set of policies and some have others, why do you think that is? I mean, what, what, what would be the factor that would make one community lean one way versus another? Is it straight kind of political bent or is it just, you know, a variance where some communities look at it one way and some another? That's a great question. I'd say... Policy is made by the councils and the different municipalities, and they're trying to reflect the will of the people. And you get some populations that are very different than others in terms of what they want. We don't want new business in our town. It's fine the way it is. We don't want more traffic. Right. Well, what about on on the state level? As the CEO of the Portland Regional Chamber of Commerce, I don't think it's a secret that Within Maine, we have approximately 488 municipalities, approximately spread out over approximately 35,000 square miles. Huge state. You can put the other four New England states inside of Maine. Um, And it feels like on the state level, whether it's through our current governor or through uh, 
uh, you know, historic comments that rural Maine has been facing many, many challenges. And my view is it's not uh, born from anything other than an evolution of an old economy to a new economy. Mm-hmm. And with so much dependency on timber and textile and other types of businesses, you know, mid and northern Maine is facing some real fundamental challenges. Whereas Portland Metro or uh, Portland Region, where you were oversaw the Chamber of Commerce, has been the most stable, the fastest growing. And in the state, I think there's two other big metro clusters, I'd mm-hmm. say Lewiston, Auburn, and the Bangor area. And my view is the new economy really favors and is really dependent upon efficiency and density because with efficiency and density, you have more efficient uh, access to health care, um, greater connectivity to education and skills, and more jobs so you can have more efficiencies. And so the, the challenges facing northern Maine are kind of structural but it feels like the view throughout the state is, oh, the people in Portland, whether it's a political issue, you know, uh, they want to they drive the train or, you know, the people mm-hmm. in Portland aren't sensitive to this or, you know, why don't they leave northern Maine ro- alone? What's your view specifically on the Portland region in terms of being an engine for the economics and economy here in all of Maine? Well, no matter how you cut it politically, it is. Right. People want to be where jobs are. They want to move to where the jobs are. And if you live in northern Maine and there's nothing that you're trained to do and no one to hire you, you're not going to last long. Yeah. I think it's, I think the jobs are absolutely the catalyst, but there's also social issues. People want to live where there's services. People want to live where there's health care. People want to live where there's a Panera or there's a concert venue or there's a bowling alley. Yep. So the jobs become the fuel for the economy. But... If without the other infrastructure, it's really hard to uh, to force capital or jobs to go where it doesn't naturally want to go. And there are many parts in rural Maine that we're just not going to get new economy businesses to invest. But I personally feel that our biggest hurdle is that we don't recognize that reality. And, and you know, people, you know. Uh, People run for office saying, elect me and I'll bring jobs to Milo or I'll bring jobs to – and Microsoft isn't going to build a tech center in rural Maine and there are real limits. There are fundamental limits because what, you know, every mile you put between a new economy job and a labor force, you're adding inefficiency. And the new economy is like this giant machine and it's just – you know, capital is like water electricity. It goes where it naturally – the quickest, easiest path Absolutely. in density and efficiency is that. So how could Maine, I know that, you know, you, you oversaw the regional chamber, but how do you think effectively Maine through policy or through legislation can face the reality that we need some real structural problems or else we will always have this imbalance and because of the rural imbalance, the tax policy creates even more burdens for the areas that are kind of growing jobs, and it's a, and it's it's stifling that growth. You're over my head, but I would say we're not the only state with the rural-urban population problem. I would say we were we are the most pronounced, not the only, and I would say that it's fundamental to our root system 
which over 200 years ago, Maine being a New England state, was one of the first states to be settled. Mm-hmm. And as the country was settled moving west, there were more natural clusters built around transportation or railroad or highways. And so I don't blame anyone. But two or 300 years ago, nobody expected planes or trains or cars. And so if you, me, Emily, her family, and 20 other people went 100 miles in the middle of nowhere, and you were a farmer, and I had some animals, and we, our economy was a five-mile radius, and you'd trade me some food, and my wife would teach her kids. And, but the economy changed. It, it, it's natural change. Sure. But everyone keeps arguing as if it's some sort of political failure that the economy has dried up in about 108 communities in Maine as opposed to recognizing it's a fairly natural phenomena. And the only way that it can be addressed is by facing the reality. And I don't think we do that. I, I, I think we keep having economic development directors and we have meetings on Mondays and we give out donuts and croissants and people sit in rooms going, let's, you know, by sheer will, we can bring prosperity and money to XYZ community in rural Maine. And it's not happening, and the statistics show that there's an outflow, and then it becomes multi-generational with families kind of stuck in, in, in places where there isn't really any economic future. And I've been told that you are the economic guru. We have Godfrey <laughs> Wood here. He's, he uh, was the CEO of Portland Regional Chamber of Commerce. He's now the executive director of Habitat for Humanity of Greater Portland. But I don't know if it's a political solution where we need to change the legislative makeup because otherwise we can't create policy. I don't know if we need somebody standing up and saying jobs are not coming back to these communities. They just aren't. Not not the level they were. And if we don't start shifting, literally shifting infrastructure to areas where there is density and efficiency, we're losing time and we're losing opportunity for the new economy. I agree with you. I know, but we've got to fix it, Godfrey Wood. You, you know, we've got to fix it. Emily, how many people have we had in here that I've, I'm, I am begging anyone, everyone, <laughs> please help us? What can we do to Several, fix- several. But I, I have a related question. Sure. So there, there are several Habitat for Humanity groups within Maine itself. Is that correct? There are nine. Nine. Yes. So what are the other groups in that there must be some in central Maine or in the more rural parts of Maine? How do they get support and... and- provide help for people who need it within Habitat for Humanity? It's hard. Habitat gets its support by running events, walks, whatever, um, by sponsors, by grants, and we do most of our building with volunteers. And it's a very fragile operation because Habitat typically sells houses and loses money on every house they sell. And, you know... Well, uh, well transitioned, Emily, into Habitat uh, Habitat uh, for Humanity. For listeners that may not be familiar in general, kind of the, the structure of Habitat for Humanity, if you wouldn't mind spending a few minutes just talking about that, and then Greater Portland, the group you're the executive director, and then specifically, um, just a kind of a snapshot, how many homes have been built in the last year or two, what's the, uh, is the funding is there any funding through commu- local community services, or is it all donation-based, or is there any government support? And just give people a snapshot of Habitat for Humanity in general and then Habitat for Mu- uh, Humanity here in Greater Portland. I'm looking at the clock. 
plenty of time. <laughs> oh, okay. It just plenty reset. Of, the clock. This is an important <laughs> subject. Um, Habitat uh, for Humanity is based in Atlanta, Georgia. It's been around since the 70s, and it's the largest builder of homes throughout the world. J- Jimmy Carter, who was president from uh, rural Georgia, was he part at all? I know he's, he's in, active in many communities and building homes, but was he involved at all in the formation of Habitat? No, he wasn't, but he's been a huge supporter, a huge voice. I'm actually going to the conference in March, and he and his wife are speaking at it in front of about 2,500 of them. So that'll be a real treat for me. Yeah, the peanut farmer from uh, Georgia. Yep. Jimmy and uh, I think Rosalind. Rosalind. Rosalind Kerr. And they go on a build every year to some community. They spend a week building a house with the volunteers and the local affiliate. Yeah, like like everything else, there's there's a dis- debate and discourse on how effective he was as a president. But as a community leader and as somebody who has really used his former position as president for good, he's done nothing but great things since Absolutely. leaving office. Absolutely. Yeah, special man. So talk about Habitat for Humanity and then talk about what what um, events and what is how does it really work here in Greater Portland. And obviously people can help out. And the website is HabitatPortlandME, for Maine, dot org. Correct. But talk about uh, Habitat for Humanity. Great. Well, there are about 1,500 offices around the country. We call them affiliates. We're all independently funded, independently operated, independent boards, and we all make contributions to Habitat International for their overhead and their efforts to improve the brand and take it worldwide. Um, In Maine, there are nine of us, and we each have an assigned territory, and we happen to be Cumberland County, and we've built 75 homes over the past 20 years. We're currently building four to five a year in Scarborough, and we're looking for other land wherever it is in greater Portland, usually to be donated to us, but we do have a budget to buy land at a discount that allows us to fulfill our mission. Okay, so take us through the 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 the, the kind of the holistic process. So you you engage as executive director for the Habitat for Humanity of Greater Portland, Cumberland County, you engage with either municipalities or landowners and say, would you like to donate or can we buy at a reduced price? We're Habitat for Humanity. You negotiate a price and then you have funds derived, I'm guessing, from donations. Yeah, oh. we, we actually have a business. We have a business called The Restore which um, sells used and gently used merchandise, furniture, appliances, and it's a huge business for us. We've got 16,000 square feet of retail space, and that generates enough revenue profit to build about two homes a year. And where is the retail space at? It's called the Restore. It's the corner of Warren Avenue and Riverside Avenue. Gotcha. And so then how does the volunteer element and... Uh, is there a mechanism for listeners or people that want to be involved uh, in relative to the labor element of building homes? And how does that work? So you identify land, you, you take ownership of land, you have some funds for materials. Do you work with building supply companies for favorable pricing? We do, yep. And then, Han- and then Hancock you, Lumber is a huge supporter of ours. Yeah, they're a great community business. They sure are. So then you... 
uh, how is it organized that you say, hey, on April 18th, we're going to build this new home in Scarborough, and you know, you send out the uh, the email, and a hundred people show up, and a Hancock lumber truck shows up, and it's designed, it's engineered, it goes up, and then how is it decided who is able to occupy or buy, or how do you gift the the ultimate homes and that whole process? Okay. Um you're right on the construction. We have two full-time construction people on our staff, and they're in charge of organizing the volunteers, safety training, scheduling the volunteers. We calculate we have roughly 700 people building every house we build. 700 people touch the building. So there's a group of electricians, a group of plumbers, and... Um, and, and, and just volunteers. And just a, a large number of volunteers. Yep. Great. So you build the home... You've got your 700 people, you've got your land, you've got your Hancock lumber, and then on June 1st, this home, this hypothetical home is built. What's the mechanism then to transfer or to process sell. applications to sell? Great question. We actually will have a family who's helped build that house. When we've picked a family who is going to get the house, they have to spend 275 hours of their own time and friends and family to build that house. Wow. It's called sweat equity. It makes them a real partner. And that's determined before the start of the build? Yeah. We like to have our family selected before we start building the house. Because otherwise you could have two different groups of people working and somebody on the second floor and then another family working on the first floor. And it's like, hey, we put in 275 hours. No, we have them. We have a purchase agreement with them for a specific house and to simplify the process, we have to have people come into an information session to find out how we work, what we require of them. We need to verify their income so we know they can afford the house. Um, and that's the biggest part. A lot of people think Habitat gives away homes. We don't. But I'll tell you the economics. If a family's making $35,000 a year, they can buy and afford one of our homes for $875 a month, mortgage payments, taxes, insurance, and a homeowner's fee. Wow. So what is the outreach? Because obviously here in Portland and Southern Maine and most places of Maine and many places across the country, there, there are real economic issues and challenges uh, coupled with real housing issues in terms of availability and access. So what does the backlog look like? So if I'm a family listening or I'm a family in southern Maine and this resonates where, boy, a house would really help us and mm-hmm. we want to work the 275 hours, how many people are currently and, and how do you, I guess, how do people get into the program or how, how do people volunteer or fill out an application so they kind of get into the queue and... Because everyone's familiar with the term Habitat for Humanity. I just don't know if as many people as would be interested are familiar with the process. There may be people right now that go, geez, I didn't know I could just do that. I'm going to, you know, Godfrey Wood is my new best friend. I'm going to go send him an email. <laughs> I'm going to volunteer. It may take a couple of years of building other houses. But yep. uh, are there 50 people in line, 20 people, 4,000 people in line? So what, what is the queue and the backlog okay. and then the, and the future trajectory look like? We don't keep a line. We don't keep a waiting list. Every time we get ready to start building a house, we know when it'll be built, when it'll be started and finished. 
and then we have an information meeting to anybody that wants to come here about what we require of them and what we give them. And how many people typically show up at the information meetings? 20, 25. So it's a manageable number. It's not a giant auditorium, right? Yeah, and Scarborough, we've been having them at the public library out there. If people are interested, best thing to do is to go to our website, which is habitatme.org, and go to the right link for getting a house. Wow. And, you know, we're in uh, mid-January 2017. Um, What does the build kind of plan look like right now for the rest of the year, and does it happen mostly in the spring and the summer? No, we're building year-round. Got two people out there right now. Wow. With volunteers today. So right this second, there's a Habitat for Humanity home being built. There are four being built. Wow. Different stages of construction. And for anyone, um, is you know, your your group is kind of specific to Greater Portland, but is there you know, what's the qualification? You know, do you you know, and if you're building in Scarborough, because presumably you have access to land in Scarborough that makes it feasible. Do you have to already live in the Portland area? Do you have to live in Scarborough? Because I think there should be more than 20 people at those meetings, Godfrey. I think if somebody knew, I've got one-twentieth of a chance to have this great opportunity to access a house and put a lot of sweat equity in, but also have some investment tied to it, more than 20 people should be in that meeting. No question. Wow. We We do have 100 people who want to come to our next meeting. Really? Yep. Well, and that was before you were on Tide Smart Talk with Steve-O on News Talk WLOB. I know. Prepare for an explosion of interest. I, I got my cell phone turned on right now. I know. <laughs> but, you know, this will be, uh, this will, you know, we tape this on Friday, so this will be on tomorrow morning's show on both AM and FM. Great. And the internet, you know, the whole World Wide Web, there's, there's a potential audience of billions. Yep. Final question. We have Godfrey Wood here. He's currently the executive director of Habitat for Humanity of Greater Portland, and as he said, please go to their website if you're interested in either volunteering, donating, or if you want to participate uh, in one, in their programming uh, with the potential of being a candidate uh, for a future home. Uh, I think it's a great it's a great program nationally. It's a great program here in Maine and other groups, and I think they do a great job here. Final question, and. Um, it's sort of a it's sort of a fastball, curveball, underhand ball. It's not a spitter, is it, Steve? No, okay. no, I don't, I don't, I don't play that game. <laughs> Big thing in the news. I'm getting ready to write a column about it. I think is LL Bean, Linda Bean, Trump, and this really ties to you know I think your experience over a decade of being a leader in uh, the regional chamber of commerce. I personally believe that LL Bean. I'm I'm a fan as a consumer. I'm a fan of LL Bean because of their company ethos and what they do for communities, as well as just being a great organization. Uh, I think I personally think it's unfair that they have been singled out because one equity member and one board member has expressed views through her political support that some people don't believe, and it feels bad to me. And I want to just, you know, I don't want to put you in the spot of L.L. Bean. You may not like their boots. Uh, I like their boots. But we've got into this realm where everyone, you know, businesses keep getting attacked as as kind of like political, you know, weapons. Mm-hmm. And it feels unfair that business sometimes gets demonized in many dimensions 
because businesses are generally collectives and collections of people and owners and employees. And because it's timely and topical, I thought, you know, see if you had a thought on what's going on with L.O.B. I love L.O.B. I love L.O.B. Yeah. I know some of the people in the family, and it's a great institution, and they've been fantastic for Maine. And when people take a position politically against it or against any business, they're basically potentially affecting the workers that live there. Right. I I agree. I think there's about 5,000 workers, and Sean Gorman lives here in Falmouth. Yep. And uh, they couldn't be more gracious as community members and as residents and as family members. And uh, I feel bad for the company. I, you know. I personally can't get too far behind Linda Bean. I respect her her right to have her own views and express them however she wants to express them. But to me, it's something bigger um, that represents some dysfunction in kind of our political discourse. Surprise. I know. <laughs> Maybe I'll write a column. I know that I, you know, I've got a little bit of an access at the forecaster, which uh, you know, I'm kidding. Hey, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate you coming in. Um, Hopefully, you'll uh, love to have you come back. And as you as you move along in the next few months in terms of a potential hockey team, we'd love to have you come back and talk about that because uh, I think uh, Maine uh, certainly has an affinity and it's an activity in Maine. I think there's a, there's a, a great history of hockey in Maine and would love to see uh, you bring a team back. Thank you much. Great. You've been listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve on News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5 FM. We will be back next week. Thank you.